Thank you for joining us in our Luke series, the most important story ever told. I would invite you to uh, go to Luke chapter 13. We've been studying and uh, working our way through the gospel of Luke for a while. And today, chapter 13, I will make this statement to you. I really believe this is the most important message that I will share in this entire series. As I've studied this and prayed about today, I believe the teachings in Luke 13 are relevant for each and every one of us. When you see the heart of compassion in Luke 13 that Jesus had for the people, I can promise you no matter where you're at today in this journey, you've come in here today, maybe you're watching online, I really believe this message is for every person in this room. And so my encouragement would be, let's open our hearts and ask God through the power of the Holy Spirit really to speak to us. And I pray that the posture of your heart is that you will respond to whatever the Lord specifically speaks to you about today. If you're using the YouVersion Bible app, get there. Many of my notes are included there. And if you would like a copy of the notes from today, uh, you can write us info at the crossloganville.org and we'll send you uh, the seven or eight pages of notes that I've put together for today's message, okay? So we want you to have these. Any message that we share is available to you. Just ask and we'll send you uh, the full notes that we use on a Sunday morning. Let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that each and every one of us would really have a posture of heart to embrace you fully. I pray that we would eliminate all distractions and hindrances now, those in this room, those watching online, and that uh, we would really anticipate a unique God encounter with you. Lord, I pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying to us and that you would have permission to bring about the change that you want to bring about in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. So this message comes from a heart of deep love and compassion for each and every person. And I want you to know your story matters. You matter to God. Your truest thing about you is your love by God. And God has created you in his image. He's kind enough to redeem us through the blood of Christ. He's kind enough to pour out the gift of the Holy Spirit so that we can walk in his power. And I pray that you would experience that today. Picking up the text in Luke 13, starting in verse 1, Jesus was informed that Pilate, Pilate appears a few different times in Scripture, predominantly he is known as the one that would lead in the execution of Jesus. Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee. These Galileans had come to town, to the temple, to worship God, and he had murdered them as they were offering sacrifices to God. Their blood, the Galileans, ended up being mixed with the lamb, etc., that was being 
sacrificed and the blood was being spilled out, Jesus has been informed about this. Then Jesus asked this question. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee? Is that why they suffered? What about the 18 people that died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners? Stop. If you read the headlines, disasters, tragedies, calamities happen every day. People are murdered, people are killed, people die. You can pick up the headlines and read that miners are stuck underground after an explosion in U.S., China, Colombia. People die. A building collapses. People die. That happened just in the last week in Afghanistan. Submarine loses oxygen. People die. There's tsunamis. There's earthquakes. There's tornadoes. There's hurricanes. There's wildfires. And when you read, people die. In 2022, natural disasters claimed over 30,000 lives globally. We were praying as our son Caleb last September was down in Naples, Florida, when Hurricane Ian burst on the scene from Naples to Fort Myers to Sanibel and began to work its way throughout this nation. 157 people died as a result of Hurricane Ian. Jesus asked the question to the disciples, are people who die in tragic ways, are they worse sinners? Do bad people die in awful ways? Is that the math equation, really? And he would say, no. Are they really worse sinners? And Jesus establishes to think in that way is foolish. You see people even in our culture. Probably over 600,000 deaths each year are heart-related, even more. Look at the hundreds of thousands of people that die of cancer. And I've been in certain church circles when certain tragedy falls on a person, they start to conclude, well, the reason they're going through this is that God is punishing that person. Jesus says, that's foolish thinking. He then turned the question, Jesus does, from why did this happen to what does this mean for you? What does this mean to you? When you see death, when you see tragedy, what does it mean to you? The reality is you and I, we could die at any time. We do not know when God is going to say, Give me back my breath. We do not know how many more days we have on the planet. 
those who died didn't think that they would die that soon. Now, if we get gut level honest, we realize it's appointed to man to die, and we're going to stand before God. Maybe we get 95 years, not 42 years, and tragedy happens. When you read about those in Scripture here, the Galileans, those in Jerusalem, they didn't think they were going to die that soon. And we can make the assumption that most people don't. Jesus then shifts the conversation. And two times he makes this statement in verses 3 and in verse 5. He says, but I tell you, 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 but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus took the conversation and where he went was here. He placed top priority on repentance. You want to know why? I want to know what. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your life? Which really means that Jesus was looking at the people saying, you be ready. You be prepared. You make sure that you're right with God. You need to know this. Repentance involves at least three key elements. Three keys. One, repentance involves the realization of sin. You've got to come to the realization of sin. You must confess that you are a sinner. And the realization of sin is not only that I confess that I'm a sinner, I realize that my sin is against the Lord. Even David in Psalm 51 would say, Lord, against you, and you only have I sinned. I'll dig deeper here. The realization of sin. The second thing that biblical repentance involves is a deep sorrow and a godly regret over my sin. Even Paul would write in Corinthians where he says that godly sorrow leads to repentance without regret. When we have this deep sorrow for our sin, here's where we go. Lord, I have royally jacked it up. Lord, I have rebelled against you. Repentance involves that there's this realization, but it also involves this deep sorrow. Repentance also involves a third element, which is a turning from sin and a turning to Jesus only. So when a person says, I have repented, the root of repent means to change your source. I was plugged into, name it, I was plugged into sex, alcohol, drugs, lust, making money, the pursuit of. I have repented. I have changed my source. My source is now Jesus, and I'm following him. So the word repentance implies change. I knew that I had repented of my sin when started looking back. You walked in aisle 10 when you were 13. You prayed a prayer. You flirted with church environment. When do you know that you repented? 
when I personally admitted and owned my sin issue, when I got honest with myself, you've got to get honest with yourself. You've got to own your sin. Lord, I'm separated from you. Then this deep sorrow over sin kicked in, and the realization that I was separated and alienated from God, not only now, but I would be for eternity. Lord, I know my sin. I've done it against you. Lord, I'm vile. I'm wretched. I'm wicked. I've got these patterns inside of me. It's me. The third thing is that you confess then. The word confess in the Greek is the word homologia. It means to say exactly the same thing God says about it. When you confess, you're agreeing with God saying, yes, I agree with you. And then, you know, you not only confess your sin to God, but you confess it to others. The scripture tells us, even in James, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. So not only do you get honest with yourself, you get honest with God. And then I knew that repentance had happened in my heart because I wanted to make restitution with others that I had wronged. So not only do I get honest with myself, I get honest with God, I want to get right with other people. I violated you. I hurt you. I crushed you. It's one of the signs of a person who is living a repentant life. And then the last piece I knew, I have truly repented because I have committed and I am now walking the path that the Lord has set before me. I'm no longer walking the path of the world. I am now walking in obedience to the Lord. I desire his word. I desire his will. I desire his ways. Here's my question. Stop. Have you repented? I'm not asking you if you have acknowledged God or even acknowledged Christ. Have you repented? Are you living even today a repentant life? Are you? But you might say, Tim, 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 tap the brakes, brother. Uh, preaching and teaching repentance is not popular today. T Tim, you realize that's not popular to talk about this. And I would say, yes, I, I know. It's not popular, but it's mandated. It's not comfortable, but it's mandated. It's commanded. In 1937, 86 years ago, the American Tract Society, which was the number one distribution of Christian literature at that time, they offered $1,000 for a new book. All these guys were starting to write at that time. We will offer $1,000, which was a ton of money at that time, for a new book that focuses on the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. The Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, sin, salvation, repentance, faith, the Scripture. 
We'll, we'll, we'll give $1,000 to what we feel to be the best book. These scholars were together, and they all unanimously declared that the winner is this guy, Dr. Harry Ironside. He was the pastor of Moody M Memorial Church up in Chicago. That famous proclamator of truth, Dr. D.L. Moody, the church was named after him. Dr. Ironside had written a book that was titled, Unless Ye Repent. His introduction read this way. He said, fully convinced in my own mind that the doctrine of repentance is the missing note in many otherwise orthodox and even fundamentally sound churches. Except you repent, you will all likewise perish, whether men are taken away by violence, by accident, or even by natural death, their doom is the same unless they turn to God in repentance. Repentance. In our day, in many churches today, Hearing people preach about repentance and sin and hell is a foreign concept. Very few do it. It is still, in many churches, the missing note. George Barna is one of the most respected guys in evangelical Christianity, uh, evangelical Christianity when it comes to observing trends and patterns, if you will, amongst church folk. George Barna spent two years researching researching how pastors have failed their churches, have failed their communities by not preaching the whole counsel of God. He spent two years observing, why are these pastors not preaching the whole counsel of God? Why do they cut and paste scripture? Why do they ignore dealing with certain aspects of scripture? And what he found was a desire to avoid controversy. In his conclusions, he said, people will get offended if we preach hard sermons, so we stay away. Attendance will suffer. Most people live superficial, carnal lives. People would rather be entertained, not challenged and changed. Why are you staying away from it? Well, we got the fear that we don't want to be labeled as a hate group. Why are you staying away from it? We fear that we might encounter lawsuits and lose our non-for-profit status. They back away. There was a fear that the financial giving may decrease, and Barna concluded this. Most pastors are more concerned with their image and personal success than they are being obedient to God and his word. When you study the life of Master Jesus... Now, we would say, I'm a Christ follower. I believe in Christ. I have received Christ. I'm a student of Jesus. If that be true, Jesus said that his message will have consequences. Jesus said that the gospel itself, when it is proclaimed, will bring about division. Jesus said that. If you look in Luke chapter 12, right before we pick up 13, Jesus had made the statement that houses will be divided. 
parents will turn on their kids if their kids respond to me as being Yeshua, Hamashiach, the anointed one, the Messiah of God. So truth is, truth is, the true gospel cannot be preached without causing offense. The true gospel cannot be proclaimed and preached without it causing offense. It is offensive to tell someone that they were born into the world, dead in their sin and their trespasses, and that they are under God's curse and that they are they're destined to experience God's wrath unless they repent. Unless they repent. Telling those who are living sinful lives that their lifestyle has eternal consequence that will lead to eternal torment in hell offends people unless they repent. Engaging in conversation with people from a variety of religious backgrounds or even the agnostic and atheist, when you look and you say, but there's only one way to the Father. All roads don't lead to the same place. When Jesus makes the declaration, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me, that conversation is offensive to those who are lost. Jesus preached repentance. John the Baptist preached repentance. Paul preached repentance. Peter preached repentance. When John the Baptist starts his public ministry pointing the way to Christ, the first message John preaches is repent, make straight the way of the Lord. When the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost and Peter preaches his first sermon, he says, repent, believe in Christ, and be baptized. Paul preached repentance. We must preach repentance, not only as a church, not only as pastors and ministers, but as individuals, we must preach repentance. Again, when we talk about repentance based on Southern culture, we're not talking about the occasional church visit. We're not talking about, I acknowledge Christ or I've added Jesus to my agenda. We're talking about violently turning from sin and turning from any other source that we would plug into. We're talking about turning from that and turning to Christ only. We're talking about total surrender. Have you repented? This to me, again, is one of the most sobering chapters in Luke 13. Jesus then picking up in verse 6, tells a story. He said, a man planted a fig tree in his garden, and he came to see if there was any fruit on it. Any fruit on it. He was always disappointed. Finally, he said to the gardener, I've waited three years, and there hasn't been a single fig 
on this tree. Cut it down. It's taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, sir, give it another chance, another year. I'll give it special attention. Increase the fertilizer that I place on it. If we get figs next year, fine. If not, we'll cut it down. Listen to me, please. Jesus is declaring, those who know me, those that have repented and have come to believe in me, who receive me and who trust me, will bear fruit. If you claim that you know me, if you claim that you belong to me, you will bear fruit. And Jesus uses this teaching to illustrate that you, based on what you've heard, you, based on being affiliated with me, you're accountable and responsible. The point is simple. Those who know Jesus bear fruit that represents Jesus. Our life reflects who we belong to. Our life reflects who our Lord is. Our life reflects what our source is. Does your life reflect the holiness and the righteousness and the grace and the kindness and the love of Jesus? Because if Jesus has truly saved me and I am born again and I have turned from and now I turn to, it will show forth in godly fruit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. But when you ponder this story, even this story of the fig tree, it illustrates that God is a patient God in his judgment. Jesus said, it's been here for three years. He had been with the people. This is his third year of ministry. And he's basically looking at the people saying, it is not my will that any would perish. It is not my will that any be cut off. It is not my will that any be severed and spend eternity in hell, alienated and separated from me. I've been with you for three years, and I'm patient, I'm loving, and I'm caring. But the emphasis is, come now, repent, get your heart and your life right with me. It is time that you become fruitful. Stop playing games and stop going through the motions it is time to get right. Your life will reflect who you belong to. Does your life reflect godly fruit? Does your life reflect that Christ is at the center of your being calling the shots? So many people have church affiliation. So many people have God acknowledgement. I can't say it enough. So few have Jesus' allegiance. Repent. Bear fruit. Picking it up in verse 22. As Jesus was passing from one city and village to another, he's headed toward Jerusalem. He is teaching in these villages as he makes his way. Someone, just someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? 
Lord, based on the way you define salvation and based on the way you talk about repentance and bearing fruit and allegiance being to you, is there just a few? Remember, Jesus even made this statement on that day. Many are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this cool stuff? And he's going to say, depart. I don't even know you and you don't know me. Jesus makes this statement. Is there only a few? Jesus said to him, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive. For many will seek to enter it and will not be able. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, the narrow door. Matthew 7 captures this same teaching where Matthew is writing to the Jewish audience and he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many that will enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Wide, narrow, many, few. Strive. The word strive if you study the root of the Greek word Dallas, this is so right in with this athletic mindset that we were marinated in. It's an athletic metaphor. The word strive means to agonize. It means to struggle. It means to fight in such a way that you're trying to win the prize. It, it means to work it out, strain, exert, effort, stay with it, don't throw the towel in, fight, agonize, strive, strive to enter the narrow gate. It's a narrow path. When you go back and study the ancient cities of where Jesus would have been doing ministry, these cities had these fortified walls around them. And in these fortified walls, it was to prevent the enemy from pursuing and attacking and disrupting the city. And inside uh, these walls, you would find these gates. And oftentimes they were these wide, big, huge gates and they would swing the gate open and masses of people would come in all at one time. You also had these smaller gates. Remember when Jesus even told the rich guy, you know it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle, which was a small passageway, than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom? Many believe that this narrow gate illustration and the eye of the needle were very similar. And what Jesus is saying is the masses, the wide road, just look at them. People just kind of flock that way and go that way. And times are just kind of drifting that way. But if you're going to go through the narrow gate, it implies that only one person can go at a time. And you might have been brought up in a family that acknowledged Christ, mom and dad, but the line in following Jesus is one deep. I didn't say follow your dad who's following your granddad who's following your grandmother. I said, you come follow me. And it implies that if you're going to walk with Jesus, you can't draft off of anybody else, that it has to be you. And it also implies that if you're going to go through the narrow gate, you can't bring a bunch of unnecessary stuff with you. 
even the writer of Hebrews would say, let us lay aside every weight and every sin. Let us lay aside anything that would so easily entangle us and let us run the race set before us. Jesus is declaring that he is the narrow path. He is the doorway to God. Even in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the door. And predominantly, his audience, again, are these religious people, many Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. And he's emphasizing that the way of religion and the way of just trying to work your way toward God and the way of just keeping rituals, that's not where it's at. Today, you and I, we stand at this fork in the road, this, which direction will I go? You and I do. We face that road every day. We get there and go, will I go the wide path or will I go the narrow path? Jesus has said that the wide path will lead to hell. The narrow path is him and it leads to eternal life. Which path am I going to take? As I was pondering and praying through this, I'm like, what's the difference in the two? If you were to contrast the narrow road versus the wide road, the narrow door, the wide, what would you say? I would say this to you. The narrow path is difficult. The wide path is easy. Any person who ever looks at you and tells you that following Jesus is easy, is lying. To deny self, to crucify flesh, to take up your cross every day, that's not easy. What's easy is going with the flow. What's easy is following the crowd. What's easy is doing what everybody else is doing. What is easy is traveling the path of least resistance. That's easy. But following Jesus on the narrow road, I promise you it's never easy. Even if you look at strive and fight and agonize, I can promise you it's a battle to tame your tongues and not just speak out of frustration and ill will. It, it, it's a battle to be kind. It's a battle to extend grace. The easier thing to do is just to go off and, well, at least I was being truthful. Yeah, you were being truthful. But man, you were being catastrophic. It's a fight to really repent of anger. It's a fight to repent of having resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness. The enemy goes, no, you don't need to deal with that. It's a fight. And I can promise you we agonize to love neighbor. Rick, we talk about loving neighbor but it is a fight at times. We agonize and strain over going, you want me to love them? They dog me. They accuse me. They betrayed me. They hurt me. They ripped me off. It's hard to walk the narrow path. Love others as you do yourself. Do nothing out of selfish ambition, vain conceit. With humility, regard others is more important than yourself. Can I tell you? I agonize putting others before me at times. I don't want to. Jesus says many will enter the wide gate, go in with a flow. Ah. 
I've heard it tell, Randy Travis said, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I think a lot of people have the intention of, I'm going to get it right one day. But they never do. Following that easy path and that wide path, it doesn't require repentance. It doesn't require self-denial. It doesn't require sacrifice. But as I said before, based on Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible is clear that when we were born into the world, we were born dead in our sin. You were born into the world dead? I was. I was born into this world, and so were you. We were born on the road to destruction. Based on the sin nature that existed inside of me when I was born, based on receiving the Adamic nature, Adam's very nature, my reservations when I was born into the world were already made in hell. I had to come to that realization. Where are you going to spend eternity? Well, I'm a good person, good compared to who? Jesus or Hitler? We must repent. We must turn to Jesus. And walking that narrow path is difficult, but Jesus says, this is the path to follow, and I promise you it's going to be hard, but you will never regret it. We have to stop. Have I really been saved? Am I really born again? Which path am I on? The second observation I would make in contrasting the wide and narrow is this. The narrow path does require discipline. The narrow path requires discipline. The wide path is undisciplined. We even read in Scripture where Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Hey, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of being godly. Discipline yourself to grow spiritually. We need to be engaged in spiritual disciplines. What are spiritual disciplines? They're practices, godly practices that God has set before us in Scripture that allow us to implement those things that honor God so that we can say no to and avoid and not have to practice sin. Well, I just walked in and got saved. I thought that was it. Implementing spiritual disciplines is so crucial for us. Developing practices that allow me to tap into the power of God to live the way he wants me to live leads to a life of joy and freedom. Dallas Willard divided spiritual disciplines into two groups, two categories. And I like what Willard has done here. He talked about the disciplines of abstinence and the disciplines of engagement. Willard said the disciplines of abstinence involve solitude. You've got to get away, be with God. Silence, simplicity, fasting. Intimate prayer with the Lord, submission, sacrifice, these disciplines. How much time do you spend in silence, in solitude, just with the Lord? Where do you go to get away just to be with the Lord? I know you would say, well, Tim, wherever I'm at, God's there. Yeah, he's in groups and he's in, but sometimes the refreshing of the soul We have to abstain. I've got to get away. I've got to breathe. And then he talks about the disciplines of engagement, which is studying God's word, worshiping God, even corporately, fellowship, confessing, 
even doing life with others where it's like, I've got to be engaged. I want to know the word. I want to study it. Where are you at? I promise you to live a life of staying on the narrow path. You have to resolve to implement spiritual disciplines. The third contrast I would make is the narrow path requires you to think. The wide path is somewhat thoughtless. And if the church and the body of Christ was ever challenged to become critical thinkers and legit thinkers in this postmodern corrupt world in which we live, it is now. But so many people, they don't think, they don't ponder. The road to hell requires no thinking. You don't have to think about what's right, what's wrong, what's moral, what's evil. If you're on the wide path, it requires no thought. You, you don't have to think about your words and your actions and your priorities. The road to hell basically says just do whatever the hell you want to do. It eliminates accountability. It eliminates responsibility. You become the caller of the shots. We live in a world that has eliminated objective truth and moral absolutes. We live in a world now that is driven by subjective reasoning. And subjective reasoning at the core says you're the subject of what is right and wrong, what you want to do. And the world in which we live, the message you will hear from the world It's your life. Just do whatever the hell you want to do. And people are crumbling. Lives and families are being shredded. It amazes me. A person given to thought, a person given to allegiance to Christ, a person who is really wanting to honor the Lord with their life, you've got to think. Some people never consider the long-term consequences of their actions and choices that they make. Addicts will get behind the the wheel of a car and take off, never considering, never considering killing somebody else, never considering the collateral damage that can be brought about as a result of their thoughtless decisions. There's married men and married women that walk into affairs And they never consider the selfishness of their choices will bring about detriment in their families. So many people live for the moment and they will spend an eternity regretting it. They live for the moment. That was the message I received when I was growing up. When I was going through high school, those early years of college, The message that was promoted even on TV during these beer advertisements with Schlitz was live for the gusto. Go for it. And I had bought into a worldly message that really emphasized the thoughtless approach of just live however the hell you want to live. Then ADC, ACDC comes out and starts singing songs like, hell ain't no bad place to be. And I'm like, really? 
after the conviction of the Holy Spirit, I'm like, really? The narrow path says you've got to think. Think about it. Think about what you're doing. As a man thinks, so he is. The narrow path is all about knowing Christ in a personal way. It's about knowing Christ. It is only through the work of the cross that we can be forgiven. It is only through the work of the cross that we can be redeemed. It is only through the work of the cross that we can be restored. It is only through the work of the cross that we can be made clean. It is only through the work of the cross, which is a less troubled road by so many, that we have to stay on. We've got to get on it, and we've got to stay on it. As I meditate and ponder even Luke 13, for me, it should motivate me and compel me to anchor deeper in Christ than I've ever anchored before. It should compel me to look at my life saying, are you living a life of repentance? It should compel me to say, look at your life. Is it bearing fruit for the glory of God? It should compel me to go, are you staying on the narrow path? Or are you compromising? I'll close you with this. Some things I wrote out, just the contrast of narrow and wide. The narrow road is all about following Jesus. The wide road is all about just following the world. The narrow road pursues godly wisdom. The wide road is about living foolish. The narrow road, that life is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The wide road is just driven by the flesh. The narrow road is living by faith in God. The wide road is all about living for the moment, living for pleasure, just buying into the hedonistic message that the world is sharing. The narrow path is about the word of God where, again, the wide one is about the opinions of man. The narrow path is lived by grace and mercy where the wide path you end up living by shame, by guilt. The narrow path, you seek the things above. The wide one, you seek self-gratification. The narrow path lives a generous life. The wide path, as we mentioned last week, is all about greed and materialism. The narrow path leads to eternity with a father. The wide path leads to death and destruction and eternal torment. Do I believe this? I do. Do I know this to be true? Yes. Do we gravitate at times toward those messages that are popular that just make us feel good? Yes. I'm only sharing out of Luke 13 today. Who spoke this? My master, my savior, my Lord. Did he address repentance head on? Did he address bearing fruit head on? Did he address which pathway that you're living life on? He, he, this is what Jesus taught. If I'm going to be his disciple, I've got to, one, repent, look at my life to see if it's bearing fruit, and stay on the narrow path. If I'm going to be his presenter of truth, I've got to preach what he gave me. Are you repenting? Yes. Are you bearing fruit? Now, as I prayed on the front side, And I pray that you were sincere, that we would ask the Holy Spirit to show us anything in our lives that he wants us to see. 
and that the posture of our heart would be to respond to the Lord for his glory. And if he points out any sin, any wreckage in our life, that we would deal with it. We're going to move into a time of prayer. And my prayer for you as you sit here this morning, even as you watch online, my prayer is that if you've never truly repented, I didn't say acknowledge, I didn't say add Jesus to my equation, I'm talking about repent. I've never repented of my sin, that you would repent today. My prayer for you is that if you say, I have repented, but I'm allowing the carnal lust of my flesh to drive my narrative and I am not bearing any fruit, that you would violently repent of that today and, and seek God's intervention in your life of restoration of life for you.